I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you military, diplomatic and political news from across Ukraine and the world. We speak to friend of the podcast, Aliona Hilivka, on the state of the war and why 2024 is a crucial year for Western democracies. I also speak to volunteer soldiers fighting in the East to understand more about their work, daily life and the realities of fighting in this war. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 11th of January, one year and 321 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes and managing director at the Henry Jackson Society, Aliona Halivko. I started by summarising the latest updates from Ukraine. There's been another strike on a Kharkiv hotel, part of a series of attacks on the eastern Ukrainian city. A Turkish journalist was among 13 civilians wounded in the Russian missile strike on the hotel on Wednesday night. Ukrainian officials said two S-300 ballistic missiles hit the Park Hotel in the centre of the city shortly after 10.30pm local time. Governor, The governor has said that people were taken to hospital and a 35-year-old man is in a critical condition. For what it's worth, the Kremlin has repeatedly insisted that its wave of missile and drone attacks on Ukrainian cities is targeted only at, quote, military industrial targets. I said, for what it's worth, I'm not sure a lot. Because of what the Ukrainians say is that no military personnel were staying at the hotel and hundreds of civilians have been killed and wounded since Russia launched a new campaign of repeated airstrikes in late December and early January. It's the fourth day in a row Russia has launched attacks on Kharkiv. Over the border, uh, Ukraine launched drones over four Russian regions, we think. The Russian Defense Ministry said three drones had been shot down in the early hours over the eastern Rostov Oblast and the Tula and Kaluga regions to the south of Moscow. Some reaction, Alexander Gusev, governor of Oranezh, which borders Ukraine to the north, said a drone had damaged the roof of a non-residential building in one of the region's towns. The Russian Interior Minister added... Interior Ministry, sorry, added that there were two fires overnight in the Moscow region, one at a factory producing materials for body armour in the village of Obokovo, and another at an administrative building in Moscow. It did not disclose the cause of the two fires and said that there were no casualties. Linked to this, the Belgorod region's governor has said that frequent Ukrainian missile and drone attacks on the city have left everyone afraid. Vyacheslav Gladkov said during a speech in Moscow that the border city was going through, quote, hard times, end quote, and that schools near the border had switched to remote learning because of the threat of further attacks. He also said, what Belgorodians have endured and are enduring, not everyone can physically cope. Children could also be seen gathering at Belgorod's railway station on Wednesday as they prepared to be evacuated to safer regions. Across the front, then moving back into Ukraine, on the battlefield, the Institute for the Study of War has said that Russia has advanced at multiple points along the front line in Ukraine. The think tank confirmed reports, reported advances to the southwest of Bakhmut and Donetsk city, as well as on the east bank of the Dnipro River. Ukrainian and Russian sources stated that positional engagements continued on the east bank, including in Kudinki, it said. Staying on missiles then, South Korea has warned that North Korea is using Ukraine as a test site, that's that's their words, with the nuclear-capable missiles it supplied to Russia. Just to remind ourselves, Russia's armed forces have launched multiple North Korean ballistic missiles at Ukraine since late December. This comes from Juan Jun-Kuk, Seoul's envoy to the United Nations, who told a Security Council meeting on Wednesday that Pyongyang was using Ukraine as a test site of these missiles. The introduction of North Korean missiles into the war in Ukraine has a significant implication on global nuclear non-proliferation, he said. Mr. Jun-Kuk added that Russia's use of the missiles was a, quote, existential threat, end quote, to South Korea. To remind ourselves again, South Korea was one of 48 countries, including the US, Britain and Germany, which issued a joint statement on Tuesday condemning the missile deliveries. That said, the transfer of these weapons increases the suffering of the Ukrainian people, supports war, Russia's war of aggression and undermines the global non-proliferation regime. A couple more updates then before we go to our guest. Turkey, Romania and Bulgaria have signed a deal to form a coalition which will clear mines in the Black Sea. 
Large numbers of the marine explosives have been laid in the sea since the war, since a full-scale invasion in Ukraine began. Yasser Gula, the Turkish defence minister, his Romanian counterpart Angel Tilvar and Atanas Zaperanov, Bulgaria's defence deputy defence minister, signed a memorandum of understanding in Istanbul on Thursday after months of talks between the NATO allies. So some good news then on mines. Finally, staying with the Black Sea, Russia's Black Sea fleet is doomed if it loses Sevastopol. This comes from Ukraine's naval chief, uh, Vice Admiral Alexei Nezhpapa, who told Ukrainska Pravda that Novorossiysk, the naval base where Russia has moved much of the fleet to after Ukrainian strikes on Sevastopol, is not large enough to fully replace it. He said... Sevastopol is the main base that fully satisfies the maintenance of the fleet. The repair base, several repair plants and airfields, including Belbek and Kacha. In Novorossiysk, there are no airfields, no large repair plants, no weapon storage facilities, etc. Asked if it is realistic to expect Ukraine to further attack Sevastopol so it cannot be used at all, the vice admiral said, this is the work that must be done. This is, there, there is a task for the president, the commander in chief of the armed forces, and we will work. An interesting update, and I think showing potentially some of the routes ahead for Ukrainian strategy going into 2024. Well, let's go to Joe Barnes, our Brussels correspondent. Joe Barnes, you've been looking at some of the political and diplomatic updates. What can you tell us? So let's start with Vladimir Zelensky, who moves on to Estonia as part of his tour of the Baltic states. So he arrived in Estonia earlier on Thursday alongside his foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba. So Estonia's foreign minister, a guy called Magnus Taskha, he said, We give a strong message and confirmation to Ukraine that Estonia stands firmly by their side, and together we will win this war. The Estonian president, Alar Karis, said that NATO needs to send more weapons to Ukraine today. Speaking at a joint press conference during the visit by Vladimir Zelensky, Mr. Karis said that arms manufacturing needs to be scaled up across Europe. That's something that we hear a lot at the moment. That basically the West needs to keep in check with what Russia is doing in terms of producing missiles, weapon tanks, ammunition for artillery guns, etc. This is what Mr. Karras had to say. Ukraine needs more. It needs better weapons. We must boost military production capabilities so that Ukraine may get what it needs. So Volodymyr Zelensky warned that a ceasefire in Ukraine would allow Russia to rearm and invade again within two to three years. That's something that the Estonian military intelligence has also said, and Estonia would be one of those sort of frontline countries that would essentially be invaded first. And interesting to know and comment on is that Estonia is where the British-run enhanced forward presence of NATO is. We have several... 100 troops and Challenger 2 tanks, etc., based there at Tapper military base. So Zelensky said, give the Russian Federation two to three years, then we will. they will simply run us over. We wouldn't take that risk. There will be no pauses in favour of Russia. But some good news. So NATO has promised to give Ukraine billions of pounds in a new military aid for 2024. So the Ukraine-NATO Council met on Wednesday, so yesterday, at ambassadorial level, and a statement after the <coughs> oh, I start again. A statement after the meeting issued by NATO said its members have pledged additional capabilities worth billions of euros to Kiev. Jens Stoltenberg, NATO Secretary General, said we will continue to stand by the brave Ukrainians as they push back against Russia's war of aggression. So there has been some reports today that in Bloomberg, the financial newswire, that when President Zelensky travels to Davos, the United States will demand a clear plan for this year's fighting. So Bloomberg is reporting and citing officials from Joe Biden's administration that the president, US president will ask for clarifications to tailor its planned aid deliveries to Ukraine's needs. The report added that Washington is concerned that tensions between Mr. Zelensky and General Valery Zeluzny, the commander-in-chief of Ukraine's armed forces, are slowing efforts to crystallise a new strategy in the war. And let's, let's move a bit further afield and to the Moldovan breakaway region of Transnistria. So Russia may be plotting a force flag operation in the region, according to the Institute for the Study of War, the ISW, the US-based think tank. Uh, So the think tank said that the Kremlin may be setting information conditions for an operation in the unrecognised state in the east of Moldova. The ISW cited an interview with Vadim Krasanovsky, 
He's the region, the regional premier, and that was via Russian state news agency TASS. And he claimed that Moldovan militarization was threatening Transnistria and emphasized the territory's extensive cooperation agreements with Russia. So ISW said the interview was likely part of efforts to set information conditions aimed at destabilizing Moldova and justifying any future Russian campaigns in the region. The Kremlin may attempt to use false flag operations in Transnistria as an attempt to claim that Russia must go to protect ethnic Russians and Russian speakers. So Transnistria is governed by a pro-Russian separatist group and hosts about 1,500 Russian soldiers at a small military base in Moldova. So then some more trouble in Russian politics. A pro-war left-wing Russian opposition politician has been detained and charged with justifying terrorism, according to state news agency TASS. So Sergei Udalslov has supported the war in Ukraine and is the husband of Anastasia Udalslov, a communist Russian MP. He posted on his Telegram channel earlier on Thursday that police were breaking down his door. He was jailed between 2014 and 2017 for organising president protests sorry, against Vladimir Putin. He continues to oppose Russia's president, but has voiced support for the war in Ukraine. And I will stop there. Thank you so much, Joe. A pleasure to welcome friend of the podcast, managing director of the Henry Jackson Society, Aliona Halivko, back to the podcast. Aliona, thank you so much for joining us. We heard yesterday on the podcast from our senior foreign correspondent, Roland Oliphant, who gave his account of the tenor of the kind of conversations he'd been having with Ukrainian friends, contacts, government officials, etc. And he painted a picture of what he thinks the year might look like, what the challenges are, how Ukraine may overcome them. I think you've also been thinking along these lines. You've written a great piece, and I would recommend it to everybody listening for The Telegraph. The headline is simply, this is Ukraine's darkest hour, but it is always darkest before dawn. Aliona, can you explain why you chose that headline? What are you trying to say? I think I similarly was talking to so many friends and family, first of all, who are living through this war. The sense of exhaustion and despair very often. I've talked to so many government officials, members of parliament, who are also my friends, who are sharing their experiences of how they've witnessed this war develop. Have they witnessed the Western interest and support go up and down through various phases? And it seems like this is the point that we've reached that seems to be the lowest. And it's not just, as one would say, failures on the battlefield. Because in fact, if we look closely at the battlefield, there is no great failure um, happening there because Ukraine is still going through an enormous number of Russian troops. We're still holding our ground. We're not losing it. Very rarely there are Rus- Russian advances that are successful. There is, of course, a very successful and victorious campaign in the Black Sea, as you rightly mentioned. And I think it will be a key goal for 2024 to sustain that. But of course, living in the age that we're living in of social media and perhaps a very short attention span, and it's nothing like Second World War when the war could fight a war for five years and still persist with it and not give up going through ups and downs. Today's world moves on much quicker, unfortunately, and the attention moves away. And another aspect of modern days is actually with attention comes the compassion, comes the public support, and comes the finances, which Ukraine desperately needs to fight this war. As long as that support amongst the population sustains, support for Ukraine sustains. We have seen various attempts to influence that support because living in the information era, we can also see multiple techniques of misinformation, disinformation being deployed. End of last year, President Zelensky mentioned the Maidan 3 campaign that was being deployed by Russia and Russian special psyops. It's been unfolded in Ukraine and in the West, trying to undermine Ukraine on all fronts by alleging various (laughs) implications of Ukraine selling off Western weapons, of enormous corruption that's actually gone tremendously down in Ukraine, of misappropriation of funds, and again, going back to weapons, a series of launched assassination attempts 
against Ukrainian officials. And that's almost gone unnoticed that, for example, the chief Ukrainian spy, the head of defense intelligence, Kirill Budanov, his wife and several of his colleagues were poisoned at the end of last year. And luckily they've recovered now. But all of those are operations are ongoing. We can see as part of that campaign, a lot of Western voices were always rallying for Russia, re-emerging again. They go quiet and go very unnoticed and low-key as soon as some genocidal, horrific incidents get exposed in Ukraine. But then as soon as that's a little bit forgotten, it's all back on the agenda. All the same topics of Ukraine is on its nobody needs this fight. How long can this forever war go on for, etc., etc. So realistically, we've reached the point when I think all of that accumulated and amalgamated into the fact that the US Congress didn't pass the aid for Ukraine, that the European Union, albeit started and launched the membership uh, process for Ukraine, could not pass the aid bill as well. And there are negotiations ongoing with the Hungarian prime minister and other countries that are wavering now in, in the EU also because of the Russian influence, especially those on the border with Ukraine which, again, is another Russian-curated campaign that was noticed by officials even here in the UK and FCDO who are watching the situation closely back in May when I talked to them, that they saw it coming with all the elections coming end of last year and this year. This was all anticipated. So we have reached that darkest hour, not just externally, not just on the international stage, but I think we inevitably are suffering it in Ukraine as well. It's very fair to say that the nation that's been at war for almost 10 years now, in February, we're going to mark not just three years of this war, but, <clears throat> excuse me, two years of this war, but also 10 years of this ongoing war since the Crimea was first annexed. We have witnessed a lot of suffering since then. We've lost so many men. Business has changed, regions have changed, population have has moved, families have been destroyed, either torn apart or lost a loved one. Many people were left unemployed or without a business, without means for survival, moved out. The country really is going through a very difficult time right now. And seeing the international support waning, and unfortunately, Ukrainians have been through that time once before, after the annexation of Crimea and the Minsk agreements, when all the sanctions were basically lifted off of Russia by 2016 to 2017, and the world just looked away and pretended like nothing's ever happened. In annexation of territories and invasion in modern day and age is something completely acceptable. So I think seeing that happening yet again after so many losses and after reigniting that belief in democracy, in defense, reinvigorating international community towards core values uh, of our humankind, seeing that the world gets torn in some kind of pre-electoral quarrels and Ukraine becomes this bargaining chip uh, between various political powers when we're losing our children every single day. It's quite heartbreaking and inevitably it causes a lot of discussions internally. Uh, many people are losing not necessarily faith um, because that's the only thing we've got left. Many people are losing hope unfortunately. But I also try to, I, also, I always try to look on the positive side. I think I've, I've mentioned it before in the pod. That's the kind of disappointment, I think, and the darkest hour that Ukraine unfortunately faced before. We faced it on Maidan during the Revolution of Dignity, when also it seemed like all hope is lost, all odds were against us. And yet something always happened and the dawn arrived and the dawn eventually must arrive. And it really is reassuring to see that at least President Zelensky is not giving up. He's out there, he's traveling the world, he's making business deals with foreign defense companies, building those private partnerships, um, rallying for support nonstop. And I think we will eventually prevail. Um, and the dawn will come. But right now it is very gloomy in Ukraine.
Thank you very much, Eleanor. A couple of things to ask you about that, I think. Something that Roland mentioned again yesterday, I think that you're alluding to as well, is that there will be, we, we might expect this year, a greater number of calls for a settlement, for negotiations, for some sort of deal to be made. You write, forcing Ukraine into negotiations with Russia would, in effect, be nothing short of a capitulation. Why do you think that? Well, A, we have been there before in 2015 with two sets of Minsk agreements when it wasn't even a peace settlement, it was just a ceasefire agreement, and yet it was violated on a daily basis by Russia. And they kept trying to push the limit and kept trying to push the border and take over another village. So we know that it's never you can never trust whatever Russia signs. It's just not worth their word and their promise is not worth the paper it's written on. That's first. Secondly, many realists of current political thought, whom I read and I even argued on several occasions, including in the Harvard University, they claim that there was this chance in March 2022 to reach some kind of agreement when Russia initially didn't get the chance to take Kiev and Ukrainians came to Belarus for those negotiations and that was the time to settle. Well, I think those realists, unfortunately, don't understand the reality and they don't really have a full grasp of understanding Russia's goals in this war. And in fact, what went on in, in that meeting, and now many of the officials who were part of that delegation are talking about it openly, and they've shared some other details that were very interesting. But effectively, the two key points that Russians came to that meeting with were, A, you need to completely give up any military capacities that you've got, basically get rid of your army, de-arming Ukraine. If we remember the beginning of the war, that was the main goal why Russia attacked Ukraine, denazifying and de-arming. So they came with that de-arming Ukraine narrative back, saying get rid of your army, give up all of your arsenals, basically lay your weapons down, give up. (laughs) If that's not capitulation, I don't know what is. And secondly, get rid of your international agency, meaning Ukraine had to commit to never enter any international body to not become a member of the EU, not become a member of NATO, stop any direct agreements with foreign governments, so basically completely give up our sovereignty. So that's, they came to Minsk in March 2022, sorry, not Minsk, I think it was another Belarus city just across the border from Ukraine. They came there saying, give up your Ukrainian statehood. And that's effectively, they tried to do it military-wise by attacking Kyiv, taking over Ukraine. They failed, so they came to ask for the same thing. And so Ukrainians going into those negotiations, they didn't expect anything else, realistically, knowing what Russia is and what Russia's goals are. And they only tried to win some time and get a ceasefire or some kind of retreat by Russian forces for 24 to 48 hours. That was the most that was expected to come out of that meeting. And unfortunately, even in that meeting, we lost one negotiator who, as we learned later, was poisoned. And if we remember as well from some media reports, uh, even Abramovich, the Russian oligarch who was mediating that from the Russian side, he had some signs of poisoning too. So you can never really trust Russia with anything. Their main goal, especially now, when they've seen that Ukraine is fighting for its survival and it's not going to give up or give in, when it's seen all the international uproar that it has caused, it will simply not let Ukraine exist anymore because we, by this point, have gained way too much traction, too much agency. We have proven to the world that the country like Ukraine exists and they can't possibly allow for this precedent to go ahead and to let any of, as they think, their small colonies to establish that sovereignty and that own independent stance because they risk losing effectively the influence in the former Soviet Union countries, the CIS region to the east, the Central Asian countries, um, whatever influence they've got left over South Caucasus. And of course, even their little vassals, like unfortunately Belarus and all the countries within their sphere of influence, as well as some republics, they know what they're risking. They're risking losing their imperial stance, effectively. So no negotiations are really tenable. Uh, The Ukrainians, having lost so many lives by this point, and the loss is 
probably just incomprehensible for anyone here in the West who just doesn't follow the war day in and day out and looks at every single instance and all the reports of deaths on daily basis. It's just too difficult to understand that having lost so much already, people will not just be ready to lay down the weapons, partition Ukraine, another really silly idea that I hear coming from very bright academics of comparing Ukraine to the Korean peninsula. It's just such, couldn't be a topic that would be more distant and situations that couldn't be more different. It just takes understanding the context here and history, most importantly, to know that either Ukraine wins, Russia is deterred and Russia fully comprehends and understands the actions of modern imperialism or it just won't stop. And as we can see now, they're not intending to stop with everything going on with North Korea and Iran. Let's turn our gaze then back to the West. You write at the end of your piece, Aliona, and I'm going to quote just a few lines from it. This is the decisive moment for the West to step up. The civilization that has made and preserved democracy, freedom and the protection of human rights has prevailed many times before, but nothing is certain. It is not just the future of one nation that is being decided in Ukraine right now, it is the future of the world. 2024 must be the moment the West overcomes its existential crises so that Ukraine can show hostile powers that our resolve is firm. Aliona, in your view, what does the West need to do when you say step up? What does that involve? I think firstly, just to decipher the West a little bit, and let's start with the United States, the country that certainly is the most powerful country in today's world in terms of GDP, in terms of talent, in terms of innovation, and of course, defense capabilities. It is the global leader that has this weirdest existential crisis and thinking that the country is in decline, that they're all doomed and lost. And again, I'm not going to point every time towards Russia and say that it's all their fault. But that's definitely the country that has mastered disinformation and influence within social media sphere brilliantly. And I'm sure that they're the ones that are actively pushing those narratives into the American information sphere. So everyone has to be really careful and smart not to let some Russian bot farms manipulate them into thinking that. But I've also read the most brilliant piece by Fareed Zakharia in Foreign Affairs magazine in January about America going through that existential crisis. And he gives all these numbers how the country is still actually thriving and is at the forefront of all developments. And yet all these narratives are so divisive ahead of the presidential elections that it's no wonder that Ukraine becomes that bargaining chip unfortunately. But one thing that I would urge all Americans, and that's the nation that's actually so dear to my heart because that was the first foreign country I've ever visited in my life as a foreign exchange student when I was 15 years old, when I won one academic year in America. And I got to learn to know those people and to love them. And they really opened up the world to me. Is Ukraine is not indeed a very distant country. I remember when I was a student in high school there, they kept asking me, so where is Ukraine exactly? Is it in Russia? Or is it always really cold there? There was really no understanding about Ukraine as a sovereign nation. And I'm afraid very little has changed in terms of people still considering that Ukraine is a sphere of influence of Russia. And that's why we can't possibly provoke any direct altercation with this, what they think, a very powerful Eurasian country that kind of runs the whole region, which effectively it is not. Economically, politically, Russia's influence is declining rapidly. And I don't know what's going to be left of it in 10 years time, whether the country will still exist. But nonetheless, it's important to understand that in Ukraine, we are deciding the future of this world. Uh, President Biden, Secretary Blinken, all the other Western leaders have said many times that the world is now at an inflection point. The post-Second World War order is no longer there. It's been completely appended and it's destroyed, probably also completely organically not purely by this war that Russia has started on Ukraine. There came a time, and it is now a time to actually rethink how we organize modern world 
and move away from the one that was established after Second World War, because that's just become redundant. Um, but what is it going to be? What are we going to create is being decided now in Ukraine, just like the previous world order has been decided um, uh, 75 years ago, almost 75 years ago, after the Second World War, when the United Nations were created, when the UN Security Council was founded, when certain rules started applying to certain countries. I think this is now our time to end this another war in Europe that actually threatens to become a third world war. And in effect, I think it already is because I think we are now living in the age of hybrid warfares. And effectively, it is a third hybrid war because Ukraine has corralled a coalition uh, around itself of almost 50 countries, if not more. It's uh, NATO, it's US being the strongest ally in the UK and European Union. It's the defense contact group that supports Ukraine and provides weapons. It's all sorts of G7 and G20 countries across the world, including Japan and Australia and New Zealand who are supporting Ukraine in various means. And effectively, we are looking at the modern third world war that we're trying to prevent from turning into a kinetic third world war, because that would be a disaster. The only risk that exists right now, and it hangs very gloomily over everyone's heads, is if we don't push back right now, if Russia doesn't see that the support from the Western countries, and I'm talking about financial aid getting passed by Congress, financial aid getting passed by the EU, more weapons and more air defense. And I'm going to touch upon why air defense is going to be extremely crucial, given the new weapons that Iran has and is developing right now as we speak, ready to deploy to Russia. And the ballistic missiles that come towards Ukraine produced in North Korea, we are going to see this hybrid third world war turn into a kinetic one very quickly. And I think if we don't take action, if the world doesn't step up in supplying Ukraine with everything it needs with a strong resolve, like it did at the beginning of the war, then we might see actually all of these rogue states acting up and thinking, okay, well, the West has forgotten and got distracted by the Israel war. It got distracted by all the elections happening everywhere, but social cohesion issues, but cost of living crisis, etc., etc. The list goes on. And now with AI kicking in, that's going to be another very difficult area to focus on. Global supply chains are disrupted. Many things are happening at the same time that, of course, take away attention and it's, it's constant competing priorities. But if this one thing doesn't get sorted, if Ukraine doesn't get everything it needs to fight Russia off and to actually start gaining advances in, in 2024, then very soon we're going to see North Korea testing more and more of its ballistic missiles on the Ukrainian ground, just like South Korea stated. We're going to see Iran, who's produced the new generation of Shahad drones, flying towards Ukraine that are now not only featuring explosive mechanisms on it, but it can also do reconnaissance so you can target and seek out the Western battery systems on Ukrainian soil more accurately. So we're going to be left completely defenseless and those Shahad drones are going to take out Western air defense very quickly, just in a heartbeat and then providing ballistic missiles themselves for Russia after the lifted ban in October last year off of Iran. So we can clearly see the axis of rogue states, the axis of evil forming in the world, and that could very unfortunately, very quickly by the end of 2024, turn into a kinetic third world war. So I would urge the Western governments to actually step up by supplying Ukraine with financial and military aid as much and as fast as it can to show the resolve. And perhaps that will stop these other countries supplying Russia with more weapons and will let them know that actually we're not playing with them. No one is taking the eye off the ball and everyone will be held accountable. Alia Nehlevko, thank you so much for joining us. In December, I saw a tweet posted by friend of the podcast and charity organiser Ada Wordsworth. 
Listeners will remember Ada from our interview on her charity, Hot, that fixes homes damaged by Russian artillery and strikes in the eastern Kharkiv region. Ada was tweeting to raise support and funds for her friends who are fighting in the Ukrainian military. You can see the thread she wrote in today's show notes. I got in touch with Ada and asked if her friends would be willing to speak to us. Luckily and very kindly, they were. So I sent over a series of questions via WhatsApp. The following interview is that conversation. To start off with, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and why you joined the army? Uh, my name is Vladislav Sharapa. Uh, together with my friend Igor Okunyev, we are new recruits in the Ukrainian Volunteer Army. We joined the defense of the country as a military volunteers, self-funded and without state payments. Shortly before the start of the full-scale war, I've spent uh, eight months traveling Africa with a tent on a Chinese motorcycle. Before that, I finished working on a major project and wanted to rest for a year or something like this. And uh, just before the war started, I planned a new journey to Middle East, specifically Pakistan, a month before the war. But I postponed my departure for some personal reasons. We were expecting the war, but unfortunately we didn't prepare. Igor and I, we've been friends and comrades for a long time, but have been inseparable since the start of the full-scale invasion. At the very beginning, we created a volunteer organization, Livy Beric, that uh, helped uh, civilians uh, initially with food and medicine. And uh, from April 2022, with uh, rebuilding roofs of the houses damaged due to the war in Ukraine. Since the beginning of summer 2022, we started buying cars for the armed forces and it was our first project with the support of the defenders. Now we only focus on roofs, cars and drones for the military. So far, we've built over 300 totally new roofs in the three regions of Ukraine, in Kiev, Chernihiv and Kharkiv regions, and bought 50 cars for the defenders. And the work continues. Additionally, we also involved in covering the war in Ukraine. We participate in exhibitions and create projects that highlight uh, the consequences of the war in Ukraine. Our exhibitions often feature artifacts found during our travels through the war-affected villages, showcasing regional peculiarities, architecture and everyday life that unfortunately disappearing due to the war. Uh, this year, we are proud to announce that we participated in um, the Venice Architectural Biennale 2023 and uh, Kiev Biennale and many other exhibitions in private galleries. During all period of the war, of full-scale war, and uh, our work, we've been taking various military training courses like shooting, tactical medicine, civilian drone operation, fixed-wing UAV and FPV drones, defensive driving. Uh, so joining the defense of the country was a matter of time and the logical continuation of our activities. In the fall of 2023, a month ago, we joined the Ukrainian Volunteer Army. Can you describe your trench to us? Give us a tour, if you can. What are your conditions in the winter? Uh, currently, we work from a dugout. It's a six square meter underground shelter with a roof made of several layers of wooden logs insulated with a um, film to protect against rain and melting snow. We access to this improvised room curved out of the heavy clay soil of southern Ukraine through a hedge, descending four slippery steps and passing a five-meter corridor with a turn. The space has an outlet for the wire and antenna and starling running through the pipe to the outside, and that's it. In the dugout, we have to heat with the trench candles, uh, which uh, sufficiently warms the entire room. From the trench candles, black soot accumulates in our noses, but without them it's impossible. Gas cylinders are expensive and dangerous. Our shelter leaks uh, when the snow melts. Uh, water drips constantly from the ceiling, forming a clay or swamp on the floor. Last time we stretched film on the ceiling, collecting water at one end in a cup and pouring it outside. 
Working in the bunker is much better than uh, from a street. It's safer and warmer. The bunker is located in narrow hedge that typically divides fields. We arrive to our hedge in a right-hand drive L200 pickup at dawn when it's still dark. This is the time when night reconnaissance drones have stopped flying and daytime ones haven't started yet. We drive through a deserted, deserted heavily damaged frontline village at high speed, then across a field on a road battered by heavy machinery. Despite the poor road damaged by shelling, we drive at 60 miles per hour to be less accessible to enemy mines or FPV drones. We drive without lights, sometimes in twilight, sometimes using night vision. From the main road to hedge, we drive without light around 20 minutes. Near our hedge, we quickly unload and the driver goes away to a safe place to wait for a group until the sunset. To get to the dugout, we walk through a muddy road uh, flattened by all-wheel drive jeeps. Uh, and the crew carries Starlink, charging station, drones and provision. At the beginning, we were told that winter has its difficulties at the war, at least due to the weather conditions, and arranging daily life takes a lot of time. The commanders found a small separate house for our group. This house had no toilet, so the first thing we did there was build a wooden outdoor toilet. There is no water in the house and we have to get water from neighbors. The house is heated by a small stove, which warms two rooms. For this we need firewood, which we take in the forest. We line the room with the foam and foil insulation to reduce drafts and keep heat. Mice run around the house, so it's important to keep order and hide food. In general, we've gotten used to these conditions and adopted, constantly trying to improve them. Can you talk a bit about the kind of action you've seen in the past few months and what happened? There are some things it's too early to speak about, but I will tell you a bit. Um, we joined the unit a month ago. Almost immediately, as a part of the group, we were sent to perform tasks, observe uh, the work of others, learn and help them. All this happens uh, in close proximity to the enemy, so everything must be done correctly and quickly. From time to time, you see new craters from the explosions on the road you travel on. On the road, you can see wild animals, fazans, hares, or even a boar. Animals can move through the villages devastated by the war easily. Explosions from various types of weaponry are heard around. Sometimes with equipment, you have to pass the short by difficult distance due to, due to the mud uh, under your feet. You spend a part of the day in mud. It's cold in the shelter with the mice running around searching for food. They are everywhere, on equipment, walls or even ceiling. We've heard a lot about the impact of Lancet loitering munitions. Is that something you've had to deal with? Enemy drones often fly in the sky here. Uh, therefore, it's necessary to stay in the shelter. Uh, mostly our task involves observation and correcting artillery. The enemy also uses other unmanned devices not only for reconnaissance, but also for striking targets. So it's crucial to be very careful. Uh, we haven't seen Lancets yet. What is morale like on the front lines? Soldiers are obviously having a hard time now, because the war has been going on so long. But we stay positive, we keep fundraising and keep fighting, because we really believe in a Ukrainian victory. Uh, knowing that uh, we have international support gives us uh, also a big moral boost. That's fascinating, thank you. Ha has anything surprised you about joining the military? Is it like how you imagined? What's different? Uh, we've been helping the military for 1.5 years. And during that time, we brought 50 cars for the Defense Forces, uh, hundreds of drones and other equipment for approximately 350,000 euros, uh, which we collected among our friends, mainly from the art world. So during that time, we've seen a bit uh, what life is like in the war. We already had a basic understanding of what's going on there. Many photos and videos from internet demonstrating the conditions in which the defenders are and problems they face. So we were familiar and kind of ready 
for the army. When we arrived to the site, we understood what was missing and what was needed more. So we ordered some more equipment we need. The only thing to get used to is the constant presence of other people, meaning that it's impossible to be alone and to get some privacy. Do you have any issues with kits? What do you need at the minute? Speaking of personal things, we are almost fully equipped. But uh, our unit constantly needs uh, drones uh, to patrol the sky and cars to go around the frontline zone and evacuate wounded. But the most relevant thing at the moment is a spectrum analyzer to detect and classify enemy drones. We, have, we already have developments on how to make a quality and affordable complex. There, is many complex, there are many complex in the world, but they cost $100,000. Our goal is to make a complex for 10,000 euros, which can be scaled by other units and this device will save thousand lives taken by enemy drones of all type, both FPV and ordinary ones that carry munition. Thank you for that answer. What would you say to people in the West about what you're going through and what you're doing? Continue to support Ukraine. Tell all about what's happening and help financially when possible. We are proud of our foreign friends who support Ukraine financially support the defense and help people rebuild destroyed villages. It's very important to continue doing this. It's not so simple anymore as the war has dragged on and many people are returning to their normal lives. There is less and less news about what's happening in Ukraine. People are tired. And finally, what would your message be to uh, lawmakers and politicians who argue that their countries should limit support to Ukraine? Our message to foreign governments is to stand with Ukraine. We are here on the front line defending Europe, and we will be here for as long as it takes to have a victory. But we need you to stand with us. Sending us equipment, we need to liberate our territory and defend our people. Thank you so much, Vladislav Vanigo. Finally today, I also spoke to Ada herself, Ada, as we mentioned, who's friends with both of those soldiers you've just heard. I wanted to know more about their relationship, how friendships survived during war, and also to hear more about her latest work with her charity, Harp. To end this episode, here's my conversation with Ada Wordsworth. Ada, it's great to see you and hear from you again. Listeners will have heard the interview we've done with those volunteer soldiers fighting in the East. Could you talk to us a little bit about how you got to know them? How did, that, how did this friendship start? Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me back on. I met them last year, last, well, the year before last now, in autumn, just after I had started doing work on reconstruction in the Kharkiv region. They were already doing work doing reconstruction in the Kiev region. I'd followed them on Instagram, had been kind of excited by what they were doing and been very inspired by them. When I and when Harp started doing, my charity started doing this work in Kharkiv, and they got in touch with us and asked if we could collaborate in some way. And we said, yes, please, that would be great because we really don't know what we're doing. And so we met up with them in Kiev and then a few days later went to Kharkiv with them and had a few days of kind of weird days out driving around with them around the border, had a picnic on an abandoned tank, which really bonds you. And since then have been working very closely with them on the reconstruction work. Um, I then, when I was in Ukraine in November, um, saw them in Kharkiv and they told me that they were going to be joining the volunteer army. Um, And yeah, and that's where we're at with it. And how is it for you personally with them? I mean, how do you keep in touch? What does it feel like to have friends who, who are fighting? I mean, it was. I wasn't particularly surprised when they said they were going to sign up because they'd been doing so much for the military for so long, and I could see that for them it was always the next logical step. But I obviously was quite stressed out by it, and remain stressed out by it. Remained very anxious about it. You know, I had, I have other friends in the military, but they're all people who I got to know after they were already in the military, and so I've only really known them in that context. Whereas with these guys. 
I know them as people who I kind of hang out with and have a good time with. And so it's a slightly different experience. But we do stay in touch. They have Starlink systems, and so they can stay online, keep kind of sending send me lots of sort of voice notes from about what they're up to within reason. And so we do keep in very regular contact, but it obviously is still very upsetting and concerning and I guess has just increased my sympathy for all my Ukrainian friends who have been dealing with people closer than being in the army for so long now. I knew that at some point it would probably get to this and now we're here. You mentioned in that answer that these are people who you knew before they were in the military and you could hang out with them, have a good time in, in Kharkiv. Can you tell us about that? What is the social scene like? Because you're over there for quite long stretches working. What Can you paint the picture to our audience of what that looks like when you're having a bit of time off or just relaxing or enjoying yourself in, in Kharkiv? What, what do you do? Yeah, so when I first started going to Kharkiv, which was early summer 2022, there was really not much to do. There were a couple of cafes and a restaurant or two open, but the city was pretty dead. And... That sort of continued for most of last winter. but over, And so there was one Georgian restaurant in the main square, which everyone would go to because it was the only place open and it was open latest. And, you know, in some parts of Ukraine, further west in Kiev and Lviv, places will do lock-ins and stuff like that. But that's never really been the case in Kharkiv. It's too close to the border. It's the risk there is too high. I, it wouldn't be, you know, there's no sort of pushing the boundaries for the sake of fun there. And there still is a lot more paranoia there around there being collaborators just because it's so close to the border. But having said that, since the liberation of the oblast in September 2022, in the months after that, stuff did start opening up. And there's actually now lots of bars, lots of pubs have opened, lots of restaurants, new coffee shops are opening and so there is a thriving social scene, slightly muted by the fact that there's an 11pm curfew and everything closes at nine, but nonetheless very much existent and growing in a way which is quite exciting to be around. There's a club which has reopened and is having day parties and there are bars which are opening completely anew, which is very cool. I have a friend in Kharkiv who runs a coffee shop when the war started he had one he's now got three he's also opening one in Kupiansk and one oh and somewhere else so uh, one in Kupiansk and one somewhere else also pretty much on the front line and so people are really trying to keep businesses going despite the fact that opening a chain of coffee shops in frontline cities in wartime might seem completely insane from a distance it is wonderful to see it these these day clubs in Kharkiv, they sound quite something. Are there many? Are there, have, you, have you been before? I've been to one. Because um, again, they were kind of thinking that there are a lot of in Kiev, a lot of in Lviv. In Kharkiv, I only know of one. And it was, yeah. I mean, it's it's a very strange, it's a strange atmosphere. I found it a stranger atmosphere in Kharkiv than in Kiev, for example. I think just because there is still slightly more tension there as Kharkiv is in the unfortunate position of being close enough to the border that a missile can hit before the air raid siren goes off. And so you can never really fully relax. But nonetheless, was and it felt like a very exciting place to be, felt like kind of young people was coming out and being able to enjoy themselves. And that obviously is such an important thing for people to be able to do, especially for people who have stayed in Kharkiv since the start of the war, of which there are a fair few people who stayed through the really dark days. And so for them to be able to go and let their hair down and have a good time is just really wonderful that's able to happen. And they're also always in, sorry, I was going to say they're also always funding the army. All of these events are funding the army. Every new business that's open is funding the army. And so that remains a very central part of it. Let's go back to your friends then, who we have just heard. One of the questions I asked them was, what did they lack at the moment? What do they need? What's your? We've heard their answers. What's your perspective of that as a friend and somebody who's close to them? I think I, I'm constantly asking them what they need and wanting to try to organise fundraisers and getting stuff out to them. Um, there are basic needs, which I think always exist. There's always a need for more protective equipment, for better protective equipment. 
the stuff which is provided in general by the Ukrainian army just isn't normally up to scratch, unfortunately. No fault of their own, they just don't have the funding for it. And so two years in, we're still in a position where volunteers are having to fundraise for high quality equipment for people. Drones are so important, really, really life-saving. They can do... A drone doing the scouting job is going to save lives and... But they also get destroyed at a very high rate. And so they're vital, but also you just constantly need to be buying more. And that goes for both the Mavic drones, which tend to be used for surveillance, and also the first-person view drones, which are increasingly being used instead of artillery to destroy Russian equipment, just because there isn't enough artillery. But I would say that the Mavic drones seem to be the really key thing because they're they're the thing which is really keeping people alive. They're going and doing the scouting. Um, cars are also always number one priority because they're what, they're what gets you to safety. They're what evacuates the wounded. Um, pickup trucks are constantly needed. And I know that my friends have bought a lot of them for the army before they themselves joined and a lot more are needed both for them and for other units. And so, yeah, I would say from where I'm sitting, those seem to be the most important things. There are also more high tech things. There are these signal amplifiers, which people are getting excited about, which again, go with the drones to make sure that a Mavic can go further, can do more reconnaissance. And so I guess, yeah, for me, drones cars and protective equipment seem to be the three key things that are things which everyone I speak to in the army is constantly asking for is constantly saying is the most necessary thing. Thank you so much for that Ada. Just getting back then to finish off to your work and the work of HARP in the region. Listeners will remember your interview from the end of 2023 in which you spoke about what your charity does in terms of rebuilding homes, refitting windows and boilers and so on. And I think it'd be good and interesting for the listeners, especially those who contributed, to hear a little bit about where that's gone and what's happened since then. Yeah, I mean, the the response from the last interview that I did with you was absolutely amazing. We raised a huge amount of money from it and were able to take on another about 45 homes as a result. We were able to do repairs on on windows, doors, and some basic roof repairs as well on some of them. And so that was absolutely incredible. And like to say a huge thank you to everyone who donated from that. It was beyond anything I could have imagined. We're continuing our work. I took, I'm took. i taking orders this week for another 40 houses. And when I go back to Ukraine next week, I'll be going and visiting all the homes that we've done over the last two months since I've been away and getting photos of those. And so those will be on our social media if people want to see the kind of fruits of their donations. But yeah, I would really like to thank everyone for what they gave. It was really beyond beyond what I could have possibly hoped for. Ada, is there anything else we haven't spoken about that you thought is you think is important to mention? The most important thing I can say is to ask people to keep donating, both to civilian initiatives like mine but also to initiatives like my friend's initiative you can donate via an organization called Levi Berach um, and the money from that will go goes towards providing non-lethal aid for the army including for my friends and getting those cars getting those Mavic drones getting the things that they need to keep them safe and keep them alive and make sure that they're able to get home. Ada Wordsworth thank you very much. Thank you. I'm currently fundraising in an individual capacity, um, separate to HARP, to be able to get as much of the equipment that my friends need as possible, including, you know, radios, including these Mavic drones, um, including cars, including protective equipment. Um, and if people are able to donate to that, I, you know, I would be so grateful if it helps get my friends home in one piece. That is the most important thing to me. Um, and so, you know, what I would say as a final message is just to encourage people, as I did before, to stick to Ukraine, stick with Ukraine. And if people are able to do so, to keep donating to Ukraine, to both civilian efforts, like our efforts in home repairs, and also, you know, in this non-lethal military aid as well. 
um, and whatever people are able to give is so appreciated by everyone involved. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, a world affairs newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.